Welcome to the Vinyl Crawl, your weekly podcast about vinyl records and craft beer. I'm your host, Alan Miller, joined by Matt Pfeffercorn. Hey, Matt. Hello. So, this episode, so. this is the big one, or a big one. It's not yeah. the big one. They're all big. Yeah, but this one is yeah. a... Uh, this was a pretty special one for us because we both really enjoy this album and really enjoy this genre, this niche genre. Yes. This one is uh, avant-garde jazz, which is a very specific time period of jazz when the art world and jazz combined mm-hmm. to make some strange stuff. Not quite to the point of free jazz, but still pretty out there. Yeah. Uh, and the beer we're drinking with this is also a little out there. It is a Grim from, or is the beer called? The oh, brewery man. is Grim. The brewery is Grim. The beer is Sumi Inc. Mm-hmm. And it is a Imperial Stout aged in bourbon barrels. Yes, it is. And it is very appropriate for this because it's got a really cool, strange mural mm-hmm. all over the label. Yeah. Um, it's best served at 50 to 55 degrees. Did you check ours? I could have swore it was a smidge towards 58. Uh, maybe I should have pulled it out of the fridge a little uh, it's, bit. It's okay. It is best served in a snifter or wine glass, which we are doing that. Hashtag proper glassware. <laughs> proper glassware. Uh, it was bottled in November 2016, and it is 13.5% in a one-pint bottle. These 1. guys have uh, six ounces. One point six ounces. Yeah. My mistake. These are <laughs> this uh, this Grim Brewery is out of Sterling, Virginia. Yep. And again, we could have aged this one a little bit more, but I was ready to crack into it. It came highly recommended. I need to read about this label because it's got a logo on the side. That looks to me a lot like the Peabody Essex Museum, which I wonder if that's where this mm, came from. And that's a, maybe that's in Salem, yeah, in Massachusetts. But oh, here I we go. Know. I need to read about it and see. Jeez, I know it's a Massachusetts thing. So what do you what do you think about this beer? Let's go I love it. The beer. It's great. I think it's nice. What what do you like about it? What kind of notes do you get on it? What kind of flavors do you get with it? Well, I definitely get that vanilla right on the. Right on the palate, you get the vanilla. Yep. Which makes it a little smooth. Not harsh at all. Not harsh at all. And not a lot of alcohol to it, not flavor-wise. Right, which is strange for it being 13.5%. Mm-hmm. Definitely has the coffee notes you look for in a good style. It does. I guess I can taste a little bit of that bourbon barrel, maybe. I don't know. It's more the coffee. Yeah, I definitely get a strong coffee, a strong like burnt coffee. That whole aged every it seems like that's the tagline now with any kind of stout or whatever, aged in bourbon barrels. Yeah, I, and maybe it's because KBS has been so popular. Yeah, um, still a damn fine beer there. Yeah, KBS for sure. Yeah, just hard to come by a lot of times. It but, is. Um, I've noticed that too. A lot of a lot of yeah. bourbon barrel aged beer, and a lot of it's not good. No. I've tried quite a few that I just did not care for yeah, at all. Me too. This one I think is really nice. It's, yeah. It sits well on the palate. I almost passed it up, but uh, there's a girl at the Shenanigans liquor store. The I guess she's the owner. I don't know. But she was talking about it. And yeah. Talking it up and said that they don't get it very often. So they only had four bottles. Hmm. So I thought. Ah, it's worth grabbing one. 
about how much did the they podcast. run? What kind of what kind of price did they have on them? Forty bucks. Forty. <laughs> I, that's that's <laughs> right. Yeah, I was thinking I wouldn't pay more than thirty-eight, but I think forty would probably work. Yeah. Uh, I th- think it was like fourteen ninety-nine. That's that's probably fair. You know, for how something much like that. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. Um, it's a really good. It's a good beer. It's a good solid stout. It is. Um, I don't know if it has anything to it that I would say like makes it stand out in a stout. But I think everything that the stout is supposed to do, it does, and it does them all extremely well. Yeah, it's just solid all the way around. Yeah, absolutely, and set you know has sets on the palate really nicely. You don't get any bad aftertaste or any kind of heaviness to it. it Nothing. It just drinks yeah. really nice. Yeah, I think it all around. It's a great beer, and actually all around great package. The bottle with the artwork. Yeah. Very cool. Very very modern. Very. Avant-garde. Avant-garde, yes. To go with our album, which is A Love Supreme by John Coltrane. So to give background before we get into the album about avant-garde jazz and what makes something avant-garde jazz, um, it is the the definition of it is the combination of avant-garde art aesthetic with jazz music, mm-hmm. which still is hard to imagine because those are two separate worlds in a way, but... When they fuse, you get avant-garde jazz. Um, the timeline for it was mid to late 50s all the way up to the 60s, and then it kind of went away. Everything yeah. else came in, fusion and things like that took over. Um, a lot of people can confuse it with free jazz at, a, at some instances, but I think one thing that separates it from free jazz is with avant-garde jazz, you still have form. With yes. free jazz, you don't really have form it's all about improvisation it's all about everyone in the same room playing off each other without really knowing where they're going right yeah you know ornette coleman was i was gonna say he was the i mean with his album free jazz kind of started the the whole notion of free jazz um and and his idea was let's get guys together and just see if we naturally can gravitate towards something without Mm -hmm. necessarily playing a bunch of notes on the page now, I think he did give them some small melodies to play um, every now and again. Like, yeah. he would just throw a piece of paper in front of them and say, play that, like, live in, in the right. studio. And then to see what everybody else would do. Um, but avant-garde jazz differs from that because this is more structured. This is, uh, it has a heavy emphasis on improvisation, but around a physical structure that's, yes. that's there in the music. A theme. A theme, yeah. I, and I think that's where the big differences between the two. Um, some notable artists outside of Coltrane that dabbled in avant-garde jazz, Alice Coltrane, his wife, she's, she's a, she's an easy one to go to after easy, him. Easy, yeah. Um, Sun Ra. Yeah. Definitely Sun Ra. Yeah. He was very into the whole mantra-based jazz. Uh, Ornette Coleman, he, he went into avant-garde as well with stuff like This Is Our Music and things like that. Right, yeah. Ooh, as, that's a great album. Great it really album. is. And it's not as out there as free jazz. It doesn't. It doesn't make your head explode like free jazz. Yes. Yeah. Ooh. Um, Don Cherry, the yeah. uh, played with Miles. That guy. Um, Charlie Hayden mm-hmm. is considered part of avant-garde movement. Mingus is considered part of the avant-garde movement. Hmm. Uh, Pharaoh Sanders is considered uh, part of yeah. the avant-garde yep. movement, as well as Frank Zappa, one that you hardly ever think of, but later in his career when he started doing jazz pieces, yeah. he did True. some of the similar things as. Which Zappa we could put into any category oh, yeah. of any music at any time, because he went Even through everything. 
Blue-eyed soul. <laughs> Even blue-eyed soul. He really did. Ruben and the Jets. Yeah, man. I mean, there's nothing that Frank Zappa didn't do. That's true. He had, yeah. what, over 100 albums? Yeah. So, you know, so much music. And here, I'm not going to get, don't want to get sidetracked, but that's an interesting point is what about the statement is Frank Zappa the most influential artist? Um, the hmm. answer is probably no. I've heard that, but I've heard that attached to a lot of different artists. Yeah. Like Bowie has often worn that because he was always a little bit ahead of the curve mm-hmm. um, and everybody tried to keep up with him. Yeah. But Zappa, Zappa wasn't ahead of the curve. Zappa was the curve. Yeah. Like he, he absolutely always did his own thing mm-hmm. without any trend in mind. Yeah. Miles he, Davis did that too. Miles to did extent. as well. Yeah. Yeah. And Zappa would, would cull from anything. He, he would pull any musical information he enjoyed. He would pull into his own mm-hmm. realm yeah. and make it into something his own. So I think that's a, you've got a good argument with Zappa. It's interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't know how much he influenced others. That would be my only hang-up with Zappa. Yeah. Because he was always so much in his own world. I think a lot of people have listened to him and, and gleaned things mm-hmm. from him. Yep. But I don't know how many people, other than like maybe Ween or somebody, that I could go, <laughs> oh, yeah, they listen to a lot of Zappa. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's hard to, it's hard to pick someone uh, and say, like, oh, they were probably influenced from Zappa. No, I'd say Dweezil Zappa was probably influenced heavily by Frank Zappa. Yeah. I think we can. <laughs> I think, I think we can. fair to say yeah. that. But, like, I, I mean, who would who would you consider? I mean, I guess if you look at it at a broad spectrum, it's hard to say anybody isn't influenced a little bit by something they've heard of Frank Zappa. But Steve the, Vai. Yeah. Oh, guitarist, for sure. You know. For sure. But, I mean, didn't Vi play with Vi did with Frank? in the seven, late 70s. And also Adrian Blue played with Zappa for a while, too. Yeah. George um, Duke. I mean, all kinds of. Yeah, that's a very interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's a very interesting yeah. way to put it. Anyways. That's a, that's a great topic. We should yeah. probably revisit that yeah. sometime. But um, John Coltrane's A Love Supreme, I think. It it is my favorite avant garde jazz album, and I think it is the quintessential avant garde jazz album. Yeah, I mean, what's what's your feelings on that? Uh, yeah, I'd have to say easily, probably my favorite Coltrane album. Giant Steps is really good. Wasn't Blue Train? Blue Wasn't Train, it, yeah. another solid one. I would say, and I think I wrote. I've got some notes again because yeah. you know, like this hey. one. This is an album that is, in in my opinion, impossible to use as background music. I think. Yeah. I think. Very hard. You know, there's some. You can throw on kind of blue, and you can Mm -hmm. hold that in the background, and it and it's fine, and it's fine if you want to really dig into it and focus on it. But like a love supreme makes you think about what's going on. It it won't let you. Yeah. Not if you put it. it on as background music, it basically challenges you. You're going to stop what you're doing. Yeah. And think it, because you're going to hear something and go, whoa, what's that? Yeah. What did, what, what did he just do there? Um, 
so to, to give a little bit of history on the album, it was released in 65 on Impulse. Was it his first on Impulse? Do you, do you know if it was? It's mm, a good question. So he, he was on like every jazz label. Yeah. He was on Blue Note. He was on Verve, right? Yeah. Is that, am I correct on that? Uh, maybe. And then I felt I like. I don't recall much Verve stuff. Okay. From maybe him, he but, wasn't on Verve. But if I remember correctly, he got on Impulse on this because uh, Blue Note didn't want him doing this sort of stuff. They wanted him to stick right. to the hard yeah. bop. Yes. Stick to what's cool. Stick yeah. to what people like listening to. Don't. And that was Blue Train. They wanted Blue Train. Correct. More Blue Train. Yeah. And, and he was just, you know, he got together with Alice Coltrane. And he was not interested in this anymore. No. He was interested in uh, more spiritual awakening. Yeah. And he was interested in challenging himself to play something outside of his comfort zone, mm-hmm. which yeah. is what this album absolutely oh, yeah. is. Um, so it's, it, and it also is his best selling album. So he was on to something when he decided to go this Definitely. route. He wasn't, I don't think he was being dumb with that at all. He knew no. what he was doing. Yeah. Um, but it was recorded in 64. In December of 64 by Rudy Van Gelder, which is like the name in jazz. Yeah. Van Gelder recordings are n- normally like the best recordings you could get in jazz. Um, the thing that I find so fascinating is one session. This one album session is one live. session. Yeah. It's one session of them playing yeah. with, you know, there's some outtakes and stuff, but it's just one session. You um, can tell how, well, definitely how in tune Coltrane was with his playing and his peace of mind, but the musicians with the band. Yeah. And it's only four of them. Yeah. You know, it's Coltrane on tenor, McCoy Tyner on piano, uh, Jones on drums. Yeah. Elvin Jones on drums. Yeah. Incredible drums. Yeah. And then, um, Jimmy Garrison on bass. Classic lineup. And it's, they are on fire on this they are all top of their game yeah what's crazy about it being one session is the fact that they sound so tight together mm-hmm. i mean it's almost like they were telepathically speaking to each other because every change every 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 way it moves yeah is so perfectly in time with each other even though there was a lot of improvisation going on right it's just like they all knew what each other was doing this was an album that when uh, the Grateful Dead heard this type of music, Phil Lesh, namely, and yeah. probably Garcia too, but Lesh talks a lot about jazz. And that's where they got a little bit of that improv. Like, if they could reach that. Now, you want to talk about influential. This album. Oh, man. It's, it's incredible. It's impossible to think what music would be like without this album. Yeah. Because so many artists, not just in jazz, in rock, in everything, heard this album and were just moved to make music the way he made music in it. Yeah. One thing that struck me, um, well, first, let me, the first way I heard this album, which you'll find not necessarily amusing, but just interesting, was Love, Devotion, Surrender. Oh yeah. So the the John McLaughlin Carl Santana Great 1973 album. album yeah. Love Devotion Surrender. They mm-hmm. were so moved by this record that they did a record as a tribute to Coltrane and this yeah. album that starts with A Love Supreme, right. the song A Love Supreme, 
where they kind of intermingled some of the themes from this album into a song as a tribute. I mean, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, those are those are two of the greatest guitarists of, of our generation, musicians, guitarists, whatever you want to call them, that were so moved by this album that they decided they were both going to join together and, and make a tribute to it. Just, you know, seven, eight years eight, after it came right. out. Right, not 30 years later or whatever as a tribute, but yeah. That says something. I mean, this is a atomic bomb of a record. Like when it hit, it changed everything. It leveled everything that was going on at the time. Yeah. Um, but that's the first way I heard it when I when I bought that record, probably in my teens, I guess, late teens, mm-hmm. maybe early twenties. Um, I heard the the Love Supreme with with McLaughlin and Santana, and was just like, what? is this this is so yeah. weird it's like a mantra going on and the music's really strange of course now their version's a lot more fusion than avant-garde right. jazz they've got a fusion yeah. version of it basically yeah. but it was just but it complements very it complements. well so that led me to this album and then yeah. this album blew me away then yeah it absolutely blew me away yeah um but yeah, I just thought you'd find that interesting. That's the first way I ever heard it. I, I didn't know the album before I heard the McLaughlin Santana yeah, version. that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so it's four songs. Yeah, there's when you look at the when you look at the songs on it, there's not, you know, there's not a lot to talk about as far as songs. No, it's more one piece. Yeah. Um, do you like albums like that normally? Is that something that you gravitate towards? Probably so, and I don't really know it, you know. Like, if you do, you feel like you gravitate more towards an album that has a theme that plays out rather than just like intermingled pop songs or intermingled like single. Oh yeah, single I want three. a theme. I love a concept album. Okay, you know that type of thing. And this is this. Oh is, yeah, yeah. This is one of the earliest forms of a pure concept album. It's a spiritual journey. It really is. <laughs> Basically. I mean, the songs are acknowledgement, resolution, pursuance, and then a psalm at the end. So it it's just and it's his it's his love letter to to his religion at, at the time and what he feels like God has given him, which is this this talent. Yeah. He's giving thanks back. That's what the love supreme is, is his mm-hmm. thanks back to his God for his talent. Right. Which is incredible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the first track, Acknowledgement, Out the Gate Swinging. <laughs> like, Definitely. And here's something that I found today while I was listening to it in preparation for this that I'd never really thought about. How how much do you think that gong hit at the very beginning? Because it starts with a slam of a gong yeah. hit and then the saxophone and then it's off. It's off right. and running. Yeah. some birds of fire there with that gong hit at the beginning maybe you know i, I, I never, never even thought about it but i didn't either until this morning i heard that gong hit and was like you know i don't think anybody in jazz at that time had ever done something like that yeah like probably slammed not. a gong at the beginning yeah. of a song and then had the song start but birds of fire in yeah. 71 i guess yeah that's exactly how that song starts exact same way as 
as this does. Mm-hmm. So I wonder how much, and with McLaughlin already being a huge fan, I wonder how much that influenced him to do something like that with. It was just a thought. Yeah. It was just a thought. No, that that's me. right. Uh, it might have been mirrored with Birds of Fire. He might have been trying to mirror that same feel. Yeah. Because Ma Vishnu was also a very spiritual band. Like it was all oh, about. Oh, yeah. All about yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. They could have been wanting to achieve the same type of, not necessarily greatness that Coltrane did, but as a band. Right. Like that marks the beginning. Okay, let's go. Yeah, it's and the beginning of a journey. See where we can go together. The journey starts with the gong hit. Yeah. That's that's what kicks it off. Um and I really like acknowledgement. That it might be my favorite track on on the whole thing. Um of course it's got the mantra. Yeah. The Love Supreme right. mantra with Coltrane, right. you yeah. know, chanting Love Supreme over and over, which is also that was mind blowing for the time. Oh yeah. You didn't stop playing your horn and then chant a mantra into the mic. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? <laughs> you, you know, you've been playing hard bop. Why are you going to start chanting a mantra? It's, it's impressive. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Um, it just kind of shows that he didn't care. He was just doing exactly what he wanted to do. Um, I also really like the drums on that song. a lot. Oh man. Elvin Jones gets into Solid. this. It's almost like a bossa nova beat that he gets into. That's like the 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 classic samba beat, but he's just playing it really fast and jarring. Yeah, with like a lot of snare, but clean, beats, but clean, very clean. Yeah. I mean, he's you know he's a motor running on the drums. Yeah. It's like he's keeping that time right while they're doing all their thing. But yeah, it, it's incredible. And then for it to end with that mantra, with the Love Supreme mantra, is just to me like. You can't hear the first track and then not want to hear what what else is going to come after. Yeah, true. Uh, and then that leads into, they all lead into each other. That leads into Resolution, which is another one that is like, he starts with a really like subtle bass line mm-hmm. on Upright. It's incredibly intricate bass line. Like he's playing so many notes, but yeah. just so subtly. And then it just... Bam! Boom. It hits. Yeah, the showcases were rattling and at just the starts, store this it, morning when I was listening to it. <laughs> Did you have it cranked a little too much? <laughs> a little bit. I mean, it hits hard. Yeah, it does. And That's it doesn't a solid just solid bass. It doesn't just hit. It hits into a swing, like yeah, like it hits with a swing beat. hear things like that it reminds me a lot of what was to come way years later with the quiet loud quiet approach mm-hmm. with post-rock punk uh even the jam band e- even stuff. the jam bands you're you know he set a tone with that of what you can do by using your dynamics mm-hmm. to move to move it to move yeah. the whole thing i didn't even really think about this until we were just talking about it but pink floyd 
Dark Side oh, of the I Moon. Got that in my notes. Oh, dude. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I just hadn't got there. Just yeah. Yet. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. No, we're good. That's <laughs> dude. It was hitting me too. Yeah. When I was listening to it, I was like, I hear a lot of sauce for full secrets here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh, but yeah, that the quiet loud quiet really showcases on resolution with how he opens it and then how he how he gets the song going. Yeah. Um, also, the piano parts on that, so good. Yeah. The McCoy Tyner piano. They, I like how he, you find as you listen to it, each song he lets a different guy showcase a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, as you normally do with jazz. Right. But you normally do it all in one song. You have like a vampire, a vampire, a vampire, and then you're yeah. It's like yeah. you just set pattern. This he let each segment breathe with a different person playing. Mm-hmm. So on resolution, it's more, more piano. And it's, I mean, every art, every guy playing it's, is top of their game. It's it's incredible. It's yeah. hard it's hard to even explain how good it is. It is, yeah. And you can't listen you can't separate the tracks at all. You have to sit down and listen to this start to finish. And the way in my head I separated it was just by who who was dominating the track, like which player. Yeah. Because that's that's kind of the way he moved it is every time a different guy would dominate a little, he would he would let them have some room and then he'd move to the next track. It seemed like. Yeah. And that was incredible. And he always comes in and out. Coltrane always plays a little here, lets them play. Then he'll come back in for a little bit. Yeah. Then he'll move to the next track. Yeah, it's it's mapped out really well. Because um, Coltrane dominates on the second half of Resolution. He just lets McCoy play that intricate piano through the beginning mm-hmm. and middle. Uh, and that leads into Pursuance, which is like an epic battle <laughs> for dominance. Yeah. Like... They're all playing as hard as they can, it seems like. Yeah. And battling for who's going to come out on top. And that's where the the Pink Floyd thing that you mentioned really hit me on that song. Yeah. It wasn't Dark Side as much as earlier Floyd, like Saucer Full of Secrets, that or even Echoes, if you want to go into that room. Oh, uh, yeah, that's true. Where I, I think this started the idea of a concept album for most of the prog rock guys because... With Pink Floyd, with Saucer Full of Secrets, or with Genesis with Musical Box, it's like this. It's a it's an arc and a like there's it builds to a climax and it goes down then it goes right. back up and it goes down. Yeah, and he does that with this album, with his spiritual journey, and the thing with Saucer Full of Secrets was, the the drums on Pursuance are so strong with Elvin Jones like he's playing the shit out of the yes, drums he on is. it. Uh, and that drum solo, it's blistering. Yeah, it really is. That's that's what made me feel like Saucer Full of Secrets because it has that drum section. That's the battle section with Gilmore slamming his strap oh, yeah, and all that yeah. while the drums are doing that same yep. pattern over yeah. and over again. That made me feel like they probably lifted that idea from this because it, it it feels similar just with piano and drums and stuff battling instead of like a guitar and drums. Right. Is that kind of where you were heading when you were thinking about the the dark side thought or was there something else? Well, a little bit, towards? but in the dark side, you have a lot of that 
building the quiet parts and all that. The quiet you know? loud, yeah. And uh, on the con- the whole concept side too, but you know, I didn't think too much about Saucerful. I did think about Echoes, but that's such a crazy track. Yeah, I mean, right. Pink Floyd had such a varied career too. Yeah. It, but I, I know they had to have pulled a little from this because you can you can hear this and yeah, I think you can hear this and. And any of those prog rock bands in Can, mm-hmm. Pink Floyd, and Genesis, um, even Crimson bands like that. Like oh you can, yeah, yeah. You can totally. hear this stuff in those bands. Gentle Giant. You listen to much Gentle <laughs> I Giant. Listen to much Gentle Giant. <laughs> Sadly, also John Wetton, R.I.P. That's if we're mentioning King Crimson, I got to mention John Wetton. That's a that's a sad loss. I was a huge fan of his. Not yeah. so much in Asia, but Asia. In, the, in the other bands. I was a bigger fan. <laughs> Anyhow, so <laughs> the the album ends with probably the most interesting track on there, which is Psalm. What makes it interesting is if you look at the album, if you open up the gatefold, the whole center of the gatefold is a giant poem yeah. that Coltrane wrote, and also a write-up about what the album's about. He uses the word God about 800 times. Yeah. But there's a huge poem at the end. And what he did was on Psalm, his whole horn part is the words of the poem spoken through his horn. Right. Which is so out there. Very. And I, when I didn't know that until after I listened to it, but while I was listening, I was writing notes and I was like, you know, it's like he's hanging on every note he plays Mm -hmm. without any resolution. It's like they're just they're they're going up and down, but he waits so long to bring it back to like the root note, so it it feels so dissonant. And then I was like, I got, I got to looking it up online. I was like, oh, he's singing, yeah, with his horn, like he's speaking these words. I mean, I don't even know how you talk about that. Like, uh, you have to hear it if you haven't heard it. Yeah, yeah. and I'm gonna play a little bit on here just so yeah. some people understand what I'm saying, but. It, it's like every note just hangs in the air a mm-hmm. little, but it's a dialogue. It's a, it's him speaking through his horn. But the fact that he would think to do that or make that part of this whole concept. That's incredible. And, yeah. and he, he called it wordless uh, recitation. That mm-hmm. was what, yeah. what he called it. So, and that makes sense. And I've heard other people do it like later on, like there's an album called the happiness project where I don't know if you've ever heard of that one or not, but he recorded people talking and then played a saxophone to match like their speaking. Oh pattern. really? Wow. And that's kind of what this is. And then yeah. like he would take that speech pattern, make a song out of it with his saxophone. It's really neat to listen to. I can't think of the guy that did it, but I think he probably got that idea from something like this yeah. where you use the horn as your voice instead of just as an instrument or instead of a, it's not really a melody even. It's just your voice. It's right. Yeah. It's how you inflect your speech and you play the horn that way. And then it ends with elation, elegance, exultation, all from God. Thank you, God. Amen. And that's the last thing he plays on his horn is, yeah. is those words. That's heavy, man. Yeah. That's real heavy. It is. Uh, I think you can safely say no jazz artist has done anything like this up to that point. Up to that point. Yeah. Do you think Miles was pissed? (laughs) I would say, 
you know, and Miles was so egocentric. I don't think anything would have pissed him off. Yeah. But I would say he was he was probably threatened a little by it. Is that Just why to, he did Bitches Brew? You know? Two, three years later. I don't whatever. know enough history of Miles to know if, yeah. if that's why he did, but I wouldn't put it past him as to yeah. why he went into that territory. Um, the other thing about the, the last song is there's the drums and stuff are really washy too. There's no real set pattern to it. There's just a lot of Tom rolls, mm-hmm. a lot of, of symbol washes, like a lot of crescendos on the symbols. There's no set that, that was another thing that made me feel like prog rock. Cause it, it feels like the way they do in prog rock when they have something that has a structure and then they break the structure and everything goes into more effect. Like drums are there for effect to complement the horn doing the speech, the speech part. Yeah. Like the, the horn takes the center stage on that last song. Mm-hmm. And then everything else is just there to like the piano. He's doing these like crazy, like octave hammers yeah. on the piano. Like he's just going up and down. There's no real set structure going on with the guys behind Coltrane. Right. It, it's nuts. I don't yeah. I was, I was trying to break it down in my head, and then at the point I was just like, man, I just got to listen. I can't, <laughs> right. I can't yeah. keep trying to break it down because it's too intricate to even, to even keep trying to break it down. It's its its, its own thing. its own thing and i wonder you know i don't hate to harp on the grateful dead side of it but you know when they introduced obvious drum space in the middle of the set break or to break up the second set you know it's similar to avant-garde jazz a little bit very much so you know it's everybody's doing their own thing whether it's effects or jerry doing the whole midi when in the 80s when he was into (laughs) all that but then you'd have you know in the 90s hornsby would play a pattern over and over and it just you could hear that pattern playing and everybody else is just around it circling it here and there and then they all fall in line i want to say i want to say we or yeah or they don't it just depends on how they how they feel about what's going on right I, I want to think that that would have happened even without Love Supreme because there was enough going on with jazz at the time Probably. to delete it. And I want to think that, but I don't know that because this was such a big album. You know, it sold 300,000 copies, which was massive for yeah. a jazz album at the time. So, when he was only selling 50,000. Right. You know, and then here's a great release. question. How... Of all the of people buying so many copies of that, how many you think got it? How many you think just bought it because somebody told them to buy it, or how many you think actually got it? I don't or, know. Do, or the better question maybe is, do you feel like it's accessible? I don't think so. See, I do. I don't think it's as accessible as like Kind of Blue or something like that. Well, I don't think 
like if we're talking about that time period. Oh, that time period. It's yeah. not accessible no. at all. No, of course not. You know, it is not because most people are like Coltrane. You're, you're absolutely Blue right. Train. Awesome. Love Supreme. What the hell? You know, <laughs> yeah. Miles Davis kind of blue. Bitches brew. What the hell? Yeah. You know? If you were listening to, um, was it Miles's quartet that Coltrane was in? Yeah. Or quintet. Maybe it was like multiple things he was in, but. Uh, if you were listening to Miles' quartet and like what was the bigger songs like on Dolphin Street or something like that, was that one of them? Yeah. Like if you were listening to stuff like that that was just cool jazz or hard bop or bebop or whatever, and then you jump to this, no. Yeah. You wouldn't have known what was going on. Mm-hmm. Like you couldn't have caught your bearings with it. Well, if this sold 300, 400,000, you know, by the end of the, the 60s, how come we don't see more copies? And, there, and there's <laughs> and there's the crux of it. Somebody had to have got it. Somebody got it. Like it has been jazz. Somebody collectors. trashed it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be so sad if yeah. somebody threw that away. Yeah. But I just wonder how many people put it like, ah, oh, the new Coltrane. Throw it on. It was like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when the mantra starts, because then you're. It's like, okay, now I know what I'm in wow. for. Yeah. And there were some people that were probably like, oh, wow, yeah, you know, but. I bet it opened a lot of a lot of minds to what yeah. you could do with music. Yeah. Um, I mean, we know it did. So many yeah. bands cited. And as, that's the thing. The Grateful Dead probably would be doing something like that at in the middle of the second set. But I think this, like you said, opened up their heads and a lot of people's heads and you had something to go by and like learn from. And something we've also not talked about was just how important Coltrane was to the beats. They loved him. He yeah. Was, he was their guy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like true. Kerouac, Ginsburg, um, uh, dude that yeah. shot his wife. <laughs> Can't think of his name for Burroughs. <laughs> Can't think of his name. Right. Uh, they, they loved Coltrane. Yeah. And even though this was right towards the edge of the beats, not really, doing their thing anymore they were more 50s and 60s i guess you could say this was all this whole movement was all still important to them um i I don't know it's just it's important to everybody Mm -hmm. it's a uh, it's a classic in american music it really is definitely one of the most influential albums of all time yeah even outside of jazz one of the most influential albums ever we were talking about earlier with the with the Zappa being influential. Yeah. Just how influential was this album on? You know, I've even heard Iggy Pop talk about how much this means to him, how much Coltrane meant to right. him. Right. Yeah. Like he wanted to. He's always said he wanted to sing how Coltrane's horn sounded. Like that's. Yeah. And he and well, <laughs> arguably he might have accomplished. That well, and that's times. the thing. That's a great. Um, look inside of a totally different type of music where when you listen to Iggy Pop or the Stooges, whatever, do you hear Coltrane? No. But did Iggy Pop listen to a Love Supreme or Coltrane and get inspiration from it and how great what he was doing that would inspire him to be great in his work that he did, if that makes sense. Yeah. If you said, do, when I listen to Iggy Pop, do you hear Coltrane? I would definitely say no. Yeah. But if you said, when you listen to punk rock, do you hear Coltrane? I would say yes. 
because the notion of of bucking whatever construct you're under is is this is that album yeah just like miles did with bitches brew in bucking the jazz yeah too i mean just like ornette coleman did right free jazz yeah they were the guys that were like and i'm sure some of it had to do with uh, of the time you know bucking the the white man's system they were you know they were playing that jazz for a lot of white people yeah and they probably were getting tired of that at the time like they want to do their own thing this is this is our music which yeah. is what ornette coleman said you know right like, this is our music and a lot of people wouldn't take that first step right a lot of the musicians the safe zone yeah you know coltrane could have done whatever you know blue train two or soul train two, <laughs> soul train <laughs> you know yeah, whatever too um but he didn't no and, and we got and a music's a better world the only sad thing it. about coltrane is the fact that he died so young yeah that we didn't get more music out of him and apparently from from what i've read nobody even really knew he was about to die when he did yeah he had cancer liver cancer but most people said he still looked okay, like yeah. he was still all right. And he decided through his spiritual journey that he only wanted holistic medicine and like, ah, yeah, <laughs> you know. So we lost Coltrane because of it. He was yeah. pretty young when we lost him too. But yep. I don't know. I think A Love Supreme is classic American album. Um, everyone should own a copy. Even yeah. the deluxe edition, if you want to hear all the outtakes and stuff, because there's a deluxe that's got probably seven or eight more tracks yeah. that are all different it's takes. Cool. From... That's good. And thanks for bringing your copy out too. That's yeah, you've no got a problem. nice, a nice early repress of it. I do. Yeah, from seventy one, seventy one. Yeah. How much? How much the originals fetch these days? Do you know? I don't know. I We've never looked. seen an original come into the shop. No, no, no. Honestly, I don't know if I've ever seen an original. Yeah. Maybe at some point, but yeah, ought to, it's ought to go back twenty years and buy records. <laughs> <laughs> you could find one twenty years ago. Yeah. But.